Well, if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me again to the book of Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, welcome to week 3 of our Ezra Nehemiah series. We're calling Renovation, a series that I want us to continue to walk through even on Mother's Day for the message that we come to, the verses that we come to today in Ezra chapter 3 are verses that are going to challenge all of us and the mothers in this room to consider our worship, to consider the foundation of our lives, to consider the altar of prayer in our lives. And just a little recap of where we have been. Ezra is about the restoration of God's people after a long exile in Babylon. It's also about the rebuilding of the temple, starting with the laying of, or starting with the rebuilding of the altar, excuse me, and then the laying of the foundation. But in 587 BC, the Babylonians completely destroyed Jerusalem after a 30 month siege. Jerusalem had been brought to the ground, left in rubble. The temple had been destroyed, that place that represented God's presence among his people. The upper echelon of the population had been taken and moved hundreds of miles away. And besides the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, this, the people of Jerusalem, Judea, being taken to Babylon is the lowest point in all of the Old Testament. It's as if God had turned his back on his people. And the truth is, let me just speak truthfully today, life rarely goes back to normal after a a traumatic season. Sometimes we wait for things just to bounce back and go back to normal, but hard times change us and hard times change the way that we see the world. And to resume life successfully after trauma We have to expect that mixed emotions are going to come. We're going to have mixed emotions all along the way. So back to these returnees. We know that after 70 long, almost 70 long years, a new king took power. And God showed his sovereignty over this new king by stirring his heart. And Cyrus made provision and a declaration for Jews who wanted to to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And more than 40,000, as we saw last week, chose to go back home. They walked for four months, and their reward is they finally stood after four months among all the rubble of Jerusalem. And think about their mixed emotions then. They rejoice to be back in their home, a place of promise. Therefore, they're rejoicing in the promises of God, how God keeps his word. Yet at the same time, when what they saw when they looked around was destruction. And therefore, they were reminded the reason all of this happened was because of their sin. So not only were they rejoicing, they were mourning and weeping. And what do you think is the first thing they did? Now, after three months of kind of getting their bearings, the first thing they did was go to Jerusalem the holiest month of the year, which was September for them, or for us, excuse me, and they came together, they stood amidst the the rubble in Jerusalem where the temple once stood, and they worshiped God in the middle of all the rubble. They rebuilt the altar. They laid the foundation for the temple. And just let me ask us a question this morning. If you returned home to these circumstances with everything in ruins all around you would you worship God first 
Would you worship God first? And we begin to ask questions such as this. Well, was this worship just the superstitious response of a superstitious people? Or was there something deeper at play here that we should also know and learn? With everything around them lying in ruins, desecrated, why would they devote so much energy and time in restoring corporate worship for God? And the ultimate reason is this, and don't miss this. We, all of us, are going to worship something or someone. We are all going to worship something or someone. So the, the people here moved so quickly to worship God because they understood that if they didn't worship God, they would very quickly begin to worship idols instead. So they quickly moved their hearts to worship God. Think about this. For decades, while in exile, they had been surrounded by hundreds, thousands of idols and altars for other gods. And just so we're clear this morning, just to lay the foundation or definition before us, an idol is anything that we think we need apart from Jesus to fulfill our lives. That is what an idol is. An idol arises when we desire anything more than we desire him when we trust something more than we trust him and the things that we desire listen they're often good things but did you know that good things can become false gods the gifts that god even gives to us family and children work home can become idols in which we worship one ancient theologian said this within every human heart is an idol making factory Within every human heart is an idol-making factory. And that's not just a message for everyone else out there. That's a message for us. Within our hearts is, without a doubt, the ability for us to make an idol out of anything, even the gifts that God has given to us. And we can, if we're not careful, begin to even worship those things. But back to these people. Now, for the first time in many years, they as we're going to see this morning, are approaching the altar, dedicating themselves to the God of their ancestors, to the God of Israel. So we're going to dive in and just unpack today Ezra 3. And I believe it's going to be a beneficial message today, not just for the moms in this room, but for all of us in this room. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Ezra chapter 3 together, and it begins this way. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. For the, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to, according to the, the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Now in the second year, after coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Kedmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sounds of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Father, we again come to you, and today a message entitled Starting Over, because, Lord, all of us at one time or another will be in need of a new start, a fresh start, a new beginning, Lord, with you or with others. And, Lord, we just thank you for the fresh start that you give to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we can learn here in Ezra 3 and the way that you spoke to your people then and the way you're speaking to us now. We thank you that you're the same God. Just speak to us today by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Did you know that there is a universal sign for victory and a universal sign for defeat that we see in every country, in every sporting event? The universal sign, of course, for victory is both arms raised up above your head, making a fist of both hands with exuberance all over your face because you just won. Now, the universal sign for defeat is often kind of similar hands above the head, normally placed either on the head or covering the face with your head down in dejection because you have lost. And these signs often appear at the same event at the same time. Someone who is celebrating victory and someone else who is just brokenhearted over defeat. And as we just read, we can imagine that in a scene of rejoicing and mourning, we probably see both of those signs are present. Rejoicing in victory and also defeat. And in verse 3, as we just read, they were not acting in spite of their fears. They were acting, hear this, because of their fears. Because they feared the nations around them, the people around them that did not like them. So therefore, they seek the Lord for fear of those around them. And yet, here's the reality. They knew where their safety was found. And let me say very clearly this morning, our safety is not found in numbers. Our safety is not found in might. Our safety is not found in our plans being fulfilled the way we want them to be. Our safety is found in worshiping and obeying God. Which begs the question, if that's where our safety is, then how safe are you today? 
If our safety is found in worshiping and obeying God, how safe are you today? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. And then we see, as it turns out, that restoration can be messy. It's not always beautiful. God's renewal often begins not once we're safe and once our lives make sense, but in the middle of rubble and in the middle of brokenness. In fact, God meets us right smack in the middle of our fear. God meets us right smack in the middle of rubble, and God says, worship me here. Worship me here. And oh, that we would be willing and able to always do that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to lay before us today. Normally I say three truths, but these are three musts. Three musts that I want to lay before us. And these are three musts for every mother in this room, for every father in this room, for every man, every woman, anyone in this room. These are three musts for all of our lives. The first is this. We must rebuild the altar. We must rebuild the altar. Altars are featured prominently all throughout Scripture. In fact, the word altar appears almost 400 times in the Bible with around 360 of those, excuse me, appearing in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, altars were central to honoring, worshiping God. The first thing Noah did when he came out of the ark was he built an altar. The first thing Abraham did when he came to, to Canaan was he built an altar. The altar represented not only a place of sacrifice, it was a place of worship, a place of divine intervention, a place of transformation, where God met his people there and transformed them. At the altar, humanity connected with the God of the universe. And think about this, during all the years in Babylon, almost 70 years, the people had no altar. They had no clear access to God. They had no assurance of ongoing forgiveness in their lives. In fact, their disobedience had taken the altar away from them. And now all they had was broken fellowship with God. Yes, brothers and sisters, when we are saved, God forgives us of our past, present, and future sins. But as Jesus told his disciples when he was washing their feet, we, we've already been cleansed of a bath, but as we walk this world, we will sin, and we need to have ongoing forgiveness so that we can maintain fellowship with God. That is true of all of us. But the people here, their relationship with God needed to be restored. It needed to be rebuilt. So we read in verses 2 and 3, it says, So they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 3 says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. So they built the altar, even before they started rebuilding the temple, because, hear this, worship must come first. Worship of God must come first. First, out of the rubble of their past disobedience, they first made sure that they were right with God. And the question for us today is this. What is the state of your personal altar? What's the state of your altar? Your altar of prayer before God, is it in disarray? Does it need to be repaired? Or let me ask it this way. How is your marriage? How are your children? Are they walking in obedience to the Lord? How are, how's your family? How is your home? How is your work life? How are things within the church and your service for the Lord? What do you see as your greatest 
need? Is there anything in your life broken and in need of repair or rebuilding? And the question becomes, then how is our altar? How is the altar? Because oftentimes, let me say this, a broken home and a broken family, a broken world, oftentimes can be traced back to a broken altar where we are no longer praying and seeking the Lord the way that we should. I'm not saying that in every situation, in every circumstance, but here's what I am saying. Life would be so much easier if we could just snap a finger and all of a sudden make everything new again. We can't. But praise be to God, we serve a God of new beginnings. We serve a God of restoration. We serve a God of redemption. And in thinking about the broken things in our lives, our first order of business is to ensure that our relationship with God is where it needs to be. What is the state of your prayer altar? What is the state of the prayers of your life? Is it broken? I think of the words of Jim Cimbala, pastor in New York. He says this, if we call upon the Lord in prayer, he has promised in his word to answer. Yet if we don't call the Lord in prayer, he has promised nothing. Nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what we claim to believe in our heads, our future, and I would say the future of our homes, the future of the church, depends upon our time in prayer. And let me ask this question. If God answered every prayer you prayed this week, every prayer you prayed this week, if God answered, let me ask this question. How many people would now be children of God and have entered the kingdom of God? Or... But the only thing that would have changed this week is your life or your family's life. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, our prayers become our selfish responses to our selfish lives. Instead of praying for the needs all around us. And I know this is getting deep and some of you are like, I didn't expect this on a Mother's Day. But we must hear this. We must hear this. How is the altar in our lives? Is the altar, is it functioning well in our lives? Are you persevering in your relationship with the Lord? Are you persevering in things that you're asking of the Lord, not growing weary in them? Praying and seeking the Lord's face in them, even though you see no change whatsoever, still trusting in him, still praying to him, still speaking of him. Oh, that that would be our aim, but we must Begin, if there is brokenness around us, we must begin by rebuilding the altar. By once again seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking his will for our lives. Secondly, we must consider the foundation. We must consider the foundation of our lives. Look at verse 6. You see on the screen, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Verse 8 says, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Then verse 10 says, the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Every good builder knows that in order to build a strong, stable structure, you must have a strong and stable foundation. Before the temple could ever be rebuilt, the foundation had to be laid. Which means that we must consider today not just the altar of our lives, we must consider the foundation of our lives. 
Are we living today on the only foundation that has promised to never fail us? Are we living on that foundation? When I think about this, it reminds me of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest, longest sermon he ever preached. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, we're going to actually put the verses on the screen. Jesus says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And here's what we know from this picture, this story. Both of these men, these men shared the same vision. They wanted to build a house. They both heard the, the same divine truth. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them or does not do them, they both heard truth. In fact, they both faced the same storm. The description of the storm is the same in both cases. Every single one of us in this room, in this world, will be affected by the storms of this life. We are not ever, are we promised, a pain-free or a difficult-free life. And yet, here's the difference. These two men built on different foundations. What's the difference between building on rock and building a foundation of sand? What made one a fool and one a wise man? When Luke tells the story in Luke 6, 48, Luke says that the wise man dug deep, meaning it costs more to build upon the rock. You can build on sand fairly cheaply. To build on rock is hard work. To build on sand is easy, and it is quick. But if you're going to build on the rock, it costs time, it costs energy, it costs effort, it might even cost additional funds in order to go deep. And the difference between these two men is fundamentally rooted in the fact that the, the second man, the foolish man, built his house, hear this, for show. And the first man, the wise man, built his house, hear this, to last. Are we building our houses for show? Are we building our houses to last? Are we building our lives upon that which is just showy? Are we building our lives to last? And think about this. They both experienced different results. One house stood. The other house fell. And it didn't just fall. Jesus said, great was its fall. It was a total collapse. Yet what does the Lord want us to learn? What is his fundamental point here? And I believe it's this. If you were to drive by both homes, you would not be able to tell a difference from the outside of either home. The only time you would ever discover the difference between these two homes, hear this, would be after the storm. After the storm. Only the storm reveals the foundation in which we build our lives upon. The storm reveals that. As long as the sun is shining, you won't know what your life is built upon. You might not even care about what your life is built upon, but the storm has a way of letting us know what foundation our lives are built upon. 
And we also have to understand something about foundations. Hear this. You don't wait to pour a foundation in a storm. Once a storm comes, you don't run outside and say, I've got to build a foundation. No, you better build the foundation before the storm comes. It's not a great idea to try to pour a foundation in the middle of a storm. Whatever foundation you have, you need to make sure it's solidified before the storms come. How is your foundation? Which is another way of saying, according to Jesus, how is your obedience to him? That's what Jesus said. When Jesus said building your house upon a rock or saying what we have taken it to believe is, okay, as long as I put up pictures of Jesus in my house and scriptures in my house, that's building my house upon the rock. Regardless of whether I obey him or not. But Jesus said, no, he who hears these words of mine and does them is building their house upon the rock. He who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is building on nothing but sand. How is our obedience to Jesus? And before we move on, I want to draw your attention also to the fact that in the midst of this fulfillment of the altar and the foundation, we encounter not only much rejoicing, we all also encounter unexpected weeping. So those are rejoicing because the foundation has been laid, but others are, are weeping. And there are many lessons here. Let me just give you a few. Some say that the younger people rejoice because they didn't know anything different. All they knew was that the foundation was built. The older generation weeped because they understood how far that fell from what it used to be. And what we learn from that is this, that the young need the old to remind them of the past, and the old need the young to keep us focused on the future, meaning we need each other. Others have said that those who wept basically were saying, it was better in my day, were showing terrible ingratitude for what God was doing in the present, and they were also sowing seeds of dissatisfaction in those who were doing the work. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't ignore what God is doing and all we look back is what God did. Sometime, and all we want to talk about is the past and we forget to realize that God is working today. And if he's not working in your life today, that's your fault. That's because your life isn't open to him. God is at work now and praise God he will be at work until he comes again. Oh, that we would join him in that work, but may it never be said of us. May it never be said of us that we're only focused on the past and not what God's doing now. And may it never be said of us that we are sowing seeds of dissatisfaction in the people of God and the work that they are doing. Others say that the mention of weeping shows that although the people were seeing some of God's fulfillment, they were also reminded that all of God's end-time promises that the prophets had said had not yet come true, meaning the desert wasn't blooming, the Messiah wasn't reigning, Jerusalem wasn't being exalted. So they were reminded that although this is good, this isn't God's best for us. And the same thing for us, brothers and sisters, we have been saved by his grace. It is a good thing to be his in this world, but may we never forget this world is not our home. And when things bad happen in our lives, instead of blaming God and saying, God, how could you allow that? Maybe we should say, God, are you trying to remind me that this world isn't my home? Are you trying to remind me that I'm putting too much emphasis on here and now and not enough emphasis on what is to come? Oh, that we would keep that in mind. Still, others see a picture from this of our Christian lives. 
that we shout, we should shout for joy because of all that God has done for us. God has been good to us, every one of us. Great is his faithfulness as we sang this morning. Yet at the same time, we weep over the sin that necessitated that Jesus come and die for us. Meaning we weep over our disobedience to God. We weep because we don't trust God as we should. We weep because we don't worship God as we should. We weep because we put our plans, our path, over his plans and his path for us. And let me, let me say this again this morning. I can tell you guys aren't liking this, or either you all ate lemons before you came, but here is the reality. I fear that the reason many of us have lost the capacity to rejoice in God is because we've lost the ability to weep over our sin. And because we don't weep over our sin, we don't rejoice in all that God has done for us. Oh, to God that today we would inspect the foundation of our lives and that we would build upon the rock, meaning our obedience to Jesus. You can hang a picture of a cross and you can hang crosses all over your house and still not obey Jesus. Oh, to God that we would obey him. And then number three, we must rebuild the altar, we must consider the foundation, but number three, we must rejoice in the Lord. We must rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 11. As you see on the screen, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The beauty of God's renewal that is in the midst of fear, while surrounded by rubble, God's people responded to God's character by worshiping him. They didn't wait until everything was done to praise the Lord. They didn't wait until it all made sense to praise the Lord. They worshiped God in the present. In fact, years would pass before the temple would ever be finished. Yet here they are praising the Lord. And when they sang, hear this, they declared, He is good. Not, we are good. Not, everything is good. Because, brothers and sisters, everything isn't always good, is it? There are times in our lives, if we can walk in here and say, it's all good, brother, and the truth is what we should be saying is, it stinks. Everything is falling apart. Everything, like all the, the balls I was juggling this week, they all fell on the ground, and I realized they were all eggs, and they all shattered. I mean, that's the reality of our lives. It's not always good. But even in the midst of things not being good in our lives, it doesn't change the fact that he is good. He is good. And he is working all things in our lives together for his good. Listen, in the midst of their despair, God was good. In the midst of the discouragement that wanted to grow in them, God was good. In the midst of the rubble all around them, God was good. And let me say the same for us. In the midst of our despair, God is good. In the midst of disappointment that tries to rise up or grow in us, God is good. And in the midst of rubble all around us, God is still good. And as they sing, not only was God good, but his steadfast love endures forever. 
His steadfast love endures forever. And don't miss this. As a, as a child of God, if you are a child of God in this room, their song is your song. That's our song. Our God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever and ever and ever. Theologian Kelly Kapich, in his book, You're Only Human, invites his readers to consider two questions. And here's the two questions he puts before them. First, do you believe that God loves you? He, su he suggests that most Christians would say, yeah, I, I believe God loves me. But then the second question is this, does God like you? Does God like you? And how would you respond? Listen, I'm going to be honest because, again, the pulpit's a great place to be honest. There are times where I tell my kids in love, I love you. Oh, I love you. But I don't like you very much right now. I don't like the things you're doing. I don't like the way you're speaking to your mother. I don't like the way you're treating each other. I don't like the things you're doing. right. Now. I love you. I love you. But you're hard to like right now. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe others of you are going, I would never. Praise God, his grace is at work in my home. But here's what Kelly Capich writes. He says, and we're going to put some of it on the screen, not all of it, but first of it is not on the screen. He says, have you ever felt that your parents or spouse loved you and yet wondered if they actually liked you? Love is so loaded with obligations and duty that it often loses all emotive force, all sense of pleasure and satisfaction. Like can remind us of an aspect of God's love we can all too easily forget. And then he says this, as you see on the screen, forgetting God's delight and joy in us stunts our ability to enjoy God's love. Forgiveness, as beautiful and crucial as it is, is not enough unless it is understood to come from love and lead back to love. Unless we understand the gospel in terms of God's fierce delight in us, not merely a wiping away of prior offenses, unless we understand God's battle for us as a dramatic personal rescue and not merely a cold forensic process, we have ignored most of the scriptures as well as the needs of the human condition. Brothers and sisters, our God not only loves us, he delights in us. He delights in us. And Satan would have us not know that and not believe that so that we can feel his displeasure in everything that we do, but he, he loves us. And it is this understanding of God's love and this understanding of God's grace that is the foundation for us to rebuild the broken altars in our lives and again to begin to seek the Lord, to begin to seek him again. It is also... The firm foundation that we build our lives upon, obedience to Jesus, obeying him. Not just knowing the words that he said, but by his grace, through his spirit, obeying him, following in his steps. And it is his goodness and his love that keeps us rejoicing when all we can see is rubble or when we are tempted to become dissatisfied. We say, God, open my eyes that I can see how you're working right now and I can continue to rejoice in you. I believe with all my heart that today is a day that we as a faith family need to rebuild the altar. We need to rebuild the altar of this church. We need to rebuild the altar of our homes. We need to rebuild the altar by committing ourselves to pray for our kids, 
our grandkids, those in our families that don't know the Lord or aren't living for the Lord. In fact, maybe even are living against the Lord. We need to commit ourselves again to pray, to not grow weary and well-doing. We need to consider the foundation of our lives or our lives being built upon the foundation of obedience to Christ. Don't wait until the storm comes. Consider your foundation now. And are we rejoicing in the Lord? Are we rejoicing in his goodness towards us in every circumstance? And are we rejoicing in his love that will never go away? Oh, that, that we are, or oh, that we will. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful word and this picture of, Lord, an altar, a foundation, and a people rejoicing, even surrounded by devastation. Lord, help us today to consider the altar of our lives. Consider our, our very own prayer lives. Are we seeking you? Are we seeking you for the daily forgiveness that we need for the sins that we commit every day so that we can walk in fellowship with you? Are we seeking you for our, our family, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our homes, for this your church? Oh, today would be a day of rebuilding the altar in our lives, especially as we look at the way that this world is going after our kids and grandkids like never before. The confusion that we see all around us, and yet your word says, God, you're not the author of confusion. So if you're not the author of confusion, we recognize who is. And we see his work in our lives. And Lord, we better get busy or continue to pray for our kids and our grandkids in the midst of the confusing, more confusing world than we've ever lived in. Help us to also consider the foundation of our lives. Is it being built upon Jesus, our obedience to you? Are we obeying you? And Lord, are we rejoicing in you? Can we say right now in our lives, regardless of what's happening, can we say and mean it, God, you are good? Oh, that we can, God, because you are. You're good. And your steadfast love endures forever. Just finish this time in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.